hamster with a blunt penknife and do it quicker. Welcome back to A Hamster with a Blunt Pen Knife, the Doctor Who commentary podcast. I did pause then because I forgot the name of my own <laughs> podcast. I'm two glasses of red in. Yes, you're not a big drinker. two ciders in. <laughs> <laughs> but you've come to visit me and I've forced you to drink alcohol, apparently. The only Doctor Who commentary podcast to sell its soul to ice vampires. <laughs> I am here with the magnificent Dylan Reese. Say hello. Hello. Um, it's wonderful to be back here. It's you know we've uh, we fired through Dragonfire in no time. It may have been a couple of days to everybody else, but we've been sat here enjoying the hell out of this uh, much maligned. I mean, I say much maligned. It was voted the best of the season by the Dwas at the time. It was, but as I said, all four of those stories were bang at the bottom of the. You know, I think it's those those polls. I don't read them really. Cause... No. They're too obvious. Yeah, when they come exactly. Out. Oh, City of Death, really great, fantastic. Cheers, cheers. Do you great. really hate that one? I don't hate it at all. I just, you know, like it's just such an obvious choice to be the number one, isn't it? All. Although, and, and then again, it's so predictable because it's the only Graham Williams one in the top fifteen, yeah. and then all the rest are down the bottom. I mean, people who aren't rating Nightmare on Eden or The Haunted Nyman, like, go fuck yourselves, quite frankly. <laughs> Two absolute classics. Exactly. Um, Dylan, you did promise us all two days ago um, yes. another fascinating fact at the beginning of this. I did. Um, so we were talking about how, or I was talking about how Dragonfire had an influence on my career. Mm. The other influence was um, when I used to go to these Doctor Who conventions, they used to have a celebrity meal in the evening and you'd pay extra money. And you get a Doctor Who celebrity sat at your table and you'd be sat there with, say, ten other Doctor Who fans. Oh, please tell me it was Patricia Quinn. It wasn't Patricia Quinn, oh, no. Oh, shame. Um, but obviously, being a ten-year-old, I was like, well, I hope it's John Pertwee or Nick Courtney or someone like that. And we got Mike Tucker and Alan Marshall of the, um, of the special effects team. Alan Rocky Marshall. Um, and now... Uh, for about 10 seconds, I was disappointed, but for some reason, I was sat next to Alan Rocky Marshall, and he just started talking to me about what it was like to work in the special effects department, and it was the most fascinating conversation that you could have had as a 10-year-old, and he just talked about Doctor Who and Red Dwarf, and we had a wonderful time. Well, I had a wonderful time. He was probably just drinking the complimentary wine, <laughs> and eating the complimentary food, and going, when do I not have to speak to a 10-year-old? Oh. But... <laughs> Did you already have the bug then? Had you already? I probably watched did. That? I probably did, but that it that was definitely one of the. I remember saying for about a year afterwards that I wanted to work in the visual effects department at the BBC, which I don't do because that department doesn't exist. But I don't work in visual effects. But it was definitely like, oh, you that you guys really do this for a job, and uh, here we are now, and I don't work in VFX. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I think is wonderful is how Doctor Who um, stimulates so many different things in different people. So for you, it was sort of television production and you've gone on and explored that and built your career around that. For a lot of the writers writing for the new series now, a lot of it sort of stimulated them to be creative yeah. with their writing. Like for me, it got me thinking critically which, you know, it isn't my job, I'm not paid to do it, but I spend an enormous portion of my life now yeah. uh, attempting to talk critically about Doctor Who. And you do it very well. 
well, I'll throw in a few dick jokes as well. You know? I've been <laughs> yeah, remarkably I restrained on I this know. one, I yeah, think. What's going on? Well, obviously, you just need to get me a, a little bit sozzled. <laughs> so most people get more obscene the more drunk they get. You, the other way, oh, right? no. become very polite. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll find most educated people regarding mythical convictions. Well, I won't go there again. Um, but it is true, isn't it? It does inspire people. It does. It's interesting... People always say that Star Trek inspired people to become scientists and NASA people and things like that. And yet, Doctor Who, I think, it's all about becoming media savvy in a way. Like, whether that's media savvy of working in it or understanding the, the you know, being able to critically review something, understanding the storytelling process mm. and things like that. It, it, it's weird that two shows that, on the surface, people think are very similar inspire people to do different things. Is it because... Doctor Who has that premise that it can go anywhere and do anything. So it touches all those different genres and styles and tones. So you look at that as a body of work, it's really diverse. Mm. Whereas Star Trek is very much science fiction. It's the yeah. most sciencey science fiction that is still accessible to a mainstream audience. How do you label Doctor Who then? Uh, broadly speaking, science fiction, broadly speaking, fantasy. Yeah. Uh, quite often, comedy. And in the new series, quite often soap. Yeah, exactly. And I think it mixes... It can be all those things. It can be some of those things. It can be none of those things. But, you know. I've got one more question then to ask you before we go into episode three. Hit me. And that is, as a child, how old would you have been when you first saw this VHS? Uh, probably 11 year, 10 or 11 years old. Yeah. Okay, so quite young. Yeah. Were you aware of production values being an issue or was this a point where all Doctor Who was just good Doctor Who? I think as I was watching this I think I was aware of production values being an issue but I would still because you've got to remember that this was only a few years after this I would still hold the Sylvester McCoy stuff up as being quite high production values. Things like Time of yeah, the Rani, me too. I used to think were really high production values but I mean They've obviously dated, but they, they felt like what was on TV at the time whenever we did get a rare bit of British sci-fi, like we're talking Red Dwarf and things like that. So, yeah, but whereas at the end of the Colin Baker era felt like that, but the moment Peter Davison and before that, I was very much aware that it seemed dated. You know, I was perfectly convinced I was never going to see a higher production quality than The Curse of Fenric when yeah. I first watched it. Yeah. And you know what? I'm still looking, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I just wish it wasn't on video. Mm. That video, it really does feel like someone's taking a camcorder out. Yeah. <laughs> and shot it. It's such a shame. I mean, I think that's why Star Trek repeats and Avengers repeats work so well in the 90s mm, and Doctor Who didn't. Aren't they? They're all yeah. on film. Uh, we're not at that point of HD remastering, so they look great on TV. Now you upscale them and they look a bit shoddy. But Doctor Who was already trailing behind with its videotape look like you know that that spearhead from repeat does okay and by the time you're halfway through the Silurians everybody's going oh what what is this you know that um see you're a man who knows about television so I can you're the perfect person to ask this question to you know that sort of weird filter they slapped on the first couple of series of the new series yeah was it shot on video and then yes. given a, so could they do that with this uh I mean in theory but I wonder whether it's a very di it's still it's they, the first few series are shot on digi beta, so it, it is a tape, but it's a digital form of tape, is my understanding of it. So it's sympathetic for yeah, that filter. Yeah, I don't think you could do it to this. Um, 
And I don't think at this stage we'd need to because no, no. one's going to repeat this anymore, are they? All the people, all the tape, the companies that are. So like when the horror channels did it and stuff like that, people know what they're going in for. You it was what? just that point in the nineties, wasn't it, where it wasn't as repeatable on mainstream television. I tell you, there's a production that really shows you how video can damage. That Neil Gaiman um, series, Neverwhere. Oh, God, yeah. Which just looks so cheap. Fantastic series. Wonderfully acted, wonderfully shot. But yeah, you're right. The videotape look just makes it look... I mean, yeah, it looks like old school Doctor Who. And there's only one aberration in the run, which really... It's a bit annoying, actually. I'm glad it exists, but that's Spearhead from Space, yeah. which is all shot on film. Yeah. And it's that one enticing glimpse into how Doctor Who could yeah. look. It's such a shame, but it just wasn't the way the BBC were going to do things back then. They just didn't have the money, and, you know, they still don't have the money now to do things like that. But thank God for the digital revolution. Well, would you care to watch a shoddy videotape piece of science fiction from 1987? Absolutely. Let's um, go, then. Am I counting in or you uh, Yeah, I think I introed this one. So okay. it's your countdown. Okay, and we will be pressing play in five, four, three, two, one. Here we go. Do you know, the, um, we talked a bit about the music, didn't we, in the first one. What do you think of the graphics? I mean, again, in 1994, this looked futuristic and otherworldly and amazing. And I still don't think it looks terrible. I mean, like... I mean, in 1987, I think it looks like now. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> like, the TARDIS, you can tell, is CG. The rocks look a bit funny. But the, the purples and the mm. blues and stuff, I still think, look really good. The winky face, not so much. But No, that silver paint. Yeah. That weird silver paint. But I think the effects and the music mm. marry together really Absolutely. well. And I, this was terrifying to me as a kid. That th This theme tune was truly terrifying. It, it meant you are going to get scared shitless. I loved the stars exploding at you, yeah. and then the letters flying past you. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, it, you know, like we're used to sort of the screaming sound of the theme tune, but the explosion is is a an inspired, you know, version. I think they could have just airbrushed out those bits of tinsel, couldn't <laughs> they? <laughs> Use of tinsel, unless you're doing a Christmas set, is always a no-no in science fiction, and it shows up in Doctor Who in the '80s every now and then. They did it in Time Lash when they uh, went down into the Time Lash in the new CGI version. What's wrong with everybody? And they sort of blurred it out so um, it looked like an effect. Yeah, and they're getting some good. I, I I can't remember at this point whether they were leaving these stages standing in between shooting or whether they were. I, th I think they were doing set by set at this yeah. point, weren't they? Yeah. This is a big, big set. And you, you know, there will have been a game show that was in there two days later, the Generation Game or something like that. Occasionally in 80s, so I think they kept the game show sets up, you know, and just <laughs> shot Doctor Who in them. I mean, look, you could do yeah. the Generation Game in that set. You absolutely should. Singing trees, ice gardens, glitz. <laughs> um, Kane is talking about decapitating the creature. Yes. That's another dark idea. It is, but also I think it's been sold enough that it's not... You know, it's a biomechanoid. Yeah, it's a biomechanoid. Um, so it's got some rudimentary intelligence, but it's not. It's not alive. But obviously, the doctor being the doctor, it's like it's a marvelous creature. We must save it. It's that sort of hunchback office worker hunchback that doesn't do it well, does it? In terms of all this bullshit about McCoy suddenly sort of finding his feet in remembrance of the Daleks. You get that wonderful bit in Delta and the Bannerman. You remember he goes up mm. to. Um, I say Gavron, that's Star Trek. What's the fellow's name? Gavrock. Gavrock. You know, you may think that might is right, mm. you know. 
and he, and he pulls away the hostages and in this he gets that wonderful moment at the end where he takes on Kane. Yeah. Like he fucking owns it. Do you know who I think is to blame for that? Uh, that popular opinion or at least in the more recent years is Stephen Moffat. Stephen Moffat wrote a thing for Doctor Who magazine about how and in it he said like obviously I love season 24 now but it was that final scene, the goodbye to Mel, where there was suddenly a glimmer of hope of Doctor Who being exciting and new and fresh again and becoming something more that it becomes the following season. But um, I think that's, I think that's how a lot of fandom felt, and I think that that feeling has been perpetuated over the years. So. Yeah, I agree. But it's there. I think he it, just, I think he had it. Yeah. I think Time and the Rani is definitely finding its feet. Yeah. But also, you look at early Patrick Troughton. Yeah, and, you know, five stories, he I takes think. A, yeah, he takes a while to bed in. And, you know, William Hartnell, he doesn't find the character of the Doctor. I think you can hear nerves in Tom Baker in some of those seasons. Oh, I haven't been back to 12 early Tom stories. Baker in a long time. Pertwee's there straight away. Yeah. He's just got it. Yeah. Oh, I love this woman. Who's straight out of Alien. She's yeah. Sigourney <laughs> Weaver from Alien. You know? I never leave a job off, Dad. I know. What even is that? I With ain't a... never leave... Is, is it Space Talk? What is it? And Those guns look cool as fuck, but they look so awkward. <laughs> it reminds me of Rose's gun in The Stolen Earth. Yeah, you know? Do you want more gun? <laughs> shows up with her bell bottoms and a funky <laughs> fish top and a massive gun. But you said they were doing Alien in this. Now, this episode is really... Yeah. It's trying to do They're that, isn't it? They're going on a it? bug hunt. The... We're and... going on a bug. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. And that that costume is an alien costume. Yeah. She better watch out, you know. She's so tall, she's about to hit the cling field. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Nice big second. Lots of extras. Yeah. Uh, and as you say, doubled up a bit like the Ark in space with the, you know, the things behind. Mm. And he's ready to slaughter some motherfuckers. And I remember in that book... Because I do remember in the Target novelist, I'm going to confess something to you now. But my one flirtation with heterosexuality <laughs> was Sophie Aldred on the cover of Dragonfire. I was fucking obsessed. I've still got drawings at home where I was dr- trying to replicate the cover of Dragonfire. I thought she was the prettiest thing I'd ever seen. Have you ever told Sophie Aldred that? I don't think she believed me. No. <laughs> now, look at this lovely image in the background there. I can't help but think that that star map does look like something off a game show. <laughs> I like the idea, though. Yeah, no, it's it's all about selling the um, idea. They're trying to mat in crystals in front yeah. of them as well. They just weren't there yet, yeah. were they, in television terms? No. They weren't there yet. Do you think... We've come to expect everything just to look so polished now. I think we come to expect things to have a certain level of believability. I don't know whether we're necessarily there with it. Even on look at the criticism Marvel and DC have been in for for their visual effects recently. Really? Yes. I mean, the Flash film. Uh, to quote Daisy, my partner, when we went to see the Flash, she said the CGI the CGI looked like the Polar Express. Wow. Well, see, the thing is, with these CGI heavy movies, I just feel like I'm watching a cartoon. Yeah. It, like, when The Force Awakens went back to all those practical effects, yeah. I was, I was like, in the, the cinema, sort of mm. punching the air in triumph. Like, yeah, that's... The problem is, those... I mean, both physical effects and digital effects are very expensive, but one of them you can sort of... Uh, outsource to India to get done on the cheap. Right. And then you go to a director where you can have more time to do something... 
Um, you can have more time with your actors, more shooting days, bigger stars, better actors, or you can have bigger and better special effects that are done practically, and it's always the CGI that wins out because they get more time with their actors. So it's only when, I guess, you've got a director who insists on practical effects yeah. or a budget yeah. where they have the time and yeah. the ability to do it. And those Marvel films, they don't even get a choice. All the uh, action and special effects is done by a completely different unit. The directors are brought in to do all the character stuff. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, you think those big battle scenes, they don't get a say in anything apart from a close-up where they, you know, where they deliver their heroic line. But you, I, heard, I heard that about the new series, you know, about how, um, because the, the showrunner and the producers and that have so much sort of editorial control about what goes in and what comes out mm. that the director's signature is sort of missing. Yeah. Now, I would absolutely believe that if I didn't watch episodes by Graham Harper and Rachel Talele, and I know I can see their stamp all over it. It's about operating in that environment and who's able to do it. But then I'd say um, Ben Wheatley, when he did two episodes of Doctor Who, fantastic director. His films have a unique visual flair that just aren't there in his Doctor Who episodes. Well, not even in those shots in Into the Dalek. No. No? Oh. Nah. Into the Dalek. Into the Schmalek. <laughs> Whereas poor old Chris Cloth was given a bit of shoestring, <laughs> sticky back plastic, and 50 pence. And smashed it. Went on to do skins. Yeah. So I do think directors get a certain amount of ownership, but it's about the... You know, you've still got to work within the confines of the vision of the creative leads. And on on films, quite often, the directors are the creative leads. On television shows now, it tends to be the writers. But I've heard sort of in the 70s and the 80s, because obviously we've delved behind the scenes on a lot of Doctor Who, the director had sort of casting control. You knew someone from the theatre yeah. that could handle the role, you'd bring them in. That's just not the way anymore, yeah, is but, it? I mean, if you think about it... Like, who's going to... This is the issue that Tom Baker used to have. He'd say, who knows the show better than me? Who knows the show better than the current producer and showrunner? And goes, so you might have an idea as a director want to cast this person, but actually we know, oh, no, we've got them cast in something else. Or no, they hate Doctor Who. They don't want to do it. So mm. they know that, you know, they're keeping an eye on what's fresh and new for the show. You've got to come on, come in and pull all the pieces together. Both iterations of Doctor Who are successful and work. So both approaches work. Mm. Oh, that's right. They're gonna send um, Ace back off to, back to her bedroom. Why is she going there? Oh, to get some nitro and iron. Yeah, of course. Has she been in the TARDIS yet? I've completely stopped no, looking at the screen. No, she hasn't. But this is a lovely image of the the monster carrying the little girl around. Has that little girl done any Phantom Films events? <gasps> I expect so. Yeah, she's charging <laughs> twenty quid for an autograph. I do say to Mark all the time. Good night, Teddy. <laughs> <laughs> Surprised he hasn't left you to Oh, it turns him on. <laughs> do, you, do you wear that little dress and the funny little mask as well? Oh, you were there. Okay. <laughs> oh, the one picture on Facebook I didn't post. <laughs> wow, bloody hell, the dry ice is going crazy. I I, the image of the little girl alone in yeah. that empty space is great. It's wonderful. And you know what? She's showing up some of those Moffat kids, <laughs> isn't she? I don't give her too much to do. She's just no. got to be cute, you yeah. know, in her little blue dress. Yeah, she's a young <gasps> Bonnie Langford. Look, 
Now look at how model works coming on because this yeah. looks like some of that Red Dwarf model work. Yeah, it looks great. That spaceship's great. I think there's a little wobble in it. Takes <laughs> off. Yeah, uh, the, the string sort of. But they were still learning how to do effects, and on that Panopticon tapes, Mike Tucker talks about how they would have loved to re have done it, but they were filming the special effects, sort of a lot of them, within recording breaks. So the, the main drama, and they just didn't have the time to take it. You know, the coolest thing of all is, yeah. when that spaceship explodes, all the sparks land on the screen, look. I mm. mean, that's a... Wait for it. They sort of bounce off the screen, look. Yeah, boop, boop, boop. it's amazing. <laughs> that's Basically, a hell of an explosion. Because that's shot on film in slow-mo, I would think. Do you think you need a big bang at the end of a Doctor Who story? I mean, uh, for a big space stories like this, you absolutely do. Like for... Oh, it's cheesy as hell, did you see that? <laughs> Kane. Straight Perfect. to the camera. <laughs> what a guy. He's lost his ship. He's lost his crew. Oh, no, he sold his crew. Oh, Ace's uh, very underwhelming reaction to the TARDIS. Yeah, but it's perfectly within character. She says, eh, hang about. How'd you do that, then? <laughs> <laughs> Almost as bad as Tegan. Remember in Black Orchid? You are in for a surprise. As all those policemen get in. Yeah, I, also, it's rare now in... Modern Doctor Who, and indeed the McCoy Doctor Who, for them to run back to the TARDIS in the middle of a story. In the mid-80s, it felt like they were doing it all the time, in, yeah. in the Davison era. And all those bloody army of people he's taking with him. Yeah. No one asking any questions. Well, you'd have one shot. Remember the Awakening? They're all in there. Yeah. Um, Polly, what's her face? Tegan's grandfather. <laughs> Andrew Wolsey. The camera just goes past them, and they're all sort of going, hmm. <laughs> How unusual. You think back to an unearthly child, Barbara yeah. and Ian had a breakdown when I they know. walked in. And Doctor Who kidnapped them. I don't know if you know it, but the last scene might be the first use of the word dick in Doctor Who. What? Someone said dick? She said clever dick. Ah. Don't go all clever dick with me. What's going on? Interesting. I think that might be Richard rather than penis. Right, I see. Oh, here she is, look. The camper from Stones of Blood. There she is. You know, she's gone up in the world. She's very glam, isn't she? Yeah. In fact, she's looking a bit like Cesare Diplos. <laughs> Now, this scene that with these guys is supposed to be directly out of Aliens, where the, the two Marines are stuck in the tunnel, and it just doesn't work like that on this budget. Every single gun in the Sylvester McCoy era is a spark gun. Yeah. Battlefield's full of them, Silver Nemesis is full of them. I think they just wanted those practical effects, didn't they? Which I do like, yeah. but when we get like proper artillery in Curse of Fenrir, remember yeah. that bit where the Hemovors are on the roof yeah. and they pump them full of bullets? Makes all, all the bloody holes coming out of their chests. And they're loving it as well at that point. There she goes, there's that line. You ain't never leave a job half done. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that these special effects people relish the chance to get their hands on Doctor Who. Yeah. And there was a new generation of special effects people coming through who were like, yeah, we want to do these model shots, we want to do these explosions, all these like bullets and things like that. And it just really, like, even if it didn't always work, like the flopping open of the head, they're always trying. I've heard the makeup people as well. Yeah. And even the costume people, you know. It just gives you a chance to stretch yourself creatively. Yeah. I never quite understood that. There's one sort of ice stalactite yeah. hanging from the door. Because the implications, Kane's been in there and, ah, and sort of okay. touched it, and it's turned to. He did know where her bedroom was, Glitz, yeah, didn't he's he? Been there a few times before. Not on there drunk think at about two that. in the morning. Oh, that's grim. Yeah. First it was Dibber, then it was Ace. Oh, Dibber. Yeah, oh <laughs> my god now you are talking in fact in what was that show called again Son of Glitz Son of a Glitz Son of a Glitz we'll have the new Dibber in there as well 
and uh, who's going to play him? I don't know. We'll find someone hot as hell. <laughs> I mean, that's got a bit of a Jodie Whittaker guitar this feel to it, that uh, inside of the yeah, creature's brain. Yeah, like those rock salt lamps, yeah. you know? <laughs> and it is shaped like a penis, just like mm-hmm. those... Uh, TARDIS, yeah. Exactly. For all the fans who were missing Doctor Who having a penis, they put one in the TARDIS. <laughs> it's just very unfortunate that the first female Doctor had about five of them attacking her every time she <laughs> touched the console. It was a metaphor for the Dwas. <laughs> oh, we're about to have that wonderful sequence now where McCoy confronts Kane. I said, may I do it? Yes, you may. Your people were annihilated. Your planet <laughs> obliterated. You're too late, Kane, for your revenge. Time has flown by. <laughs> How's that do? You did fantastic. You've got the job. When McCoy pops his clogs, big finish, you, you've got a shoe in to be there. Have you heard him lately? I'll do a better job than he's doing now. <laughs> no, it's true. God, once in future. Oh, I've, I've not, I I've don't not think he had a clue what he was saying in no. that. But That's a shame. No, no, but here he's trying to impress still, you know. Yeah. Well, he's a young man. Um, is he in his 40s? Yeah, well, yeah, we must have got rich off that Hobbit movie, surely. I heard. He doesn't need to do Big Finish, does he? I heard a rumour that uh, Sylvester McCoy very cleverly was one of the first people to become a millionaire off the convention scene. Uh, as in, because he was in The Hobbit and he was in Doctor Who and as the business of charging big bucks for autographs which is only in the last 10 15 years he was at the forefront of it wow. apparently I, I don't know how true this is but i was told by someone who would know this information but he must have got a lot of money from you know dvd sales and things like that as well i don't eh? think you get that much uh, and you know i mean i'm sure he did okay off repeats and dvd sales and things like that but th- these photos at the conventions and these it's signatures are, are the pension for a lot of people. I know. I've got a Mark has got a box at home <laughs> that's worth about five thousand pounds. Well, that cost him about five thousand pounds. And it's him it pulling the same face with every actor that's ever been in Doctor Who. Honestly, you know something happens in this scene now where Kane's holding Ace that people say Ace never does, and she does it right here. Does she scream? She screams. Yeah. She screams the Doctor's name, and. It's interesting that she's been calling him Professor throughout, and yeah. then in a moment of danger, when she feels really scared, she calls him Doctor. Oh, a little top up, thank you very much. There you go, the it's stop. just water, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, but it's fine. I think it's okay for Ace to scream. Now Mel screams. It's literally written in the scripts, and I think it was company policy that she would scream in the tones of the closing of the title sequence. I know it happens a lot in trial, but apparently it was written into the scripts of this as well. Wow. And I'll tell you what, she's bloody game, isn't she, to yeah. do that. Did you ever watch her as, um, what was her name? That, that, that childhood show she did. I know what um, you mean. But Violet no. Elizabeth Bott. Yeah, no, I've never seen it. I'll squeam and I'll squeam. <laughs> that really damaged her reputation, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, it also damaged... Uh... <laughs> Ian Levine and John Nathan Turner's relationship. <laughs> you mean Evil Annie? Evil Annie. That was, but that was why they ultimately fell out. Because mm. uh, I can't it, imagine Doctor in distress did that many favours to their relationship. No. I, Do you know how many times me and Mark listened to that? Too many. And my favourite bit is, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's, a, um, it's an interesting bit of popular culture effect. <laughs> The fact it's glorious that it exists, just like Dimensions in Time. I know. Those few things that John Nathan The sort of things that could never happen now. No. 
It would be less of a show without them. It's true. <laughs> we're, 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 look, we're just missing the uh, the takeoff of the spaceship because the entire planet is a space. It must be a small. That's either the world's biggest spaceship or a very small. Planet. Well, it's like a colony ship, isn't it? Because yeah. they say it's a colony. That makes sense. But that they turned into an Iceland. <laughs> you had to make money for that army somehow. Yeah, you know, like that freezing <laughs> equipment's expensive. <laughs> oh dear. You know, now we're getting the showdown between McCoy and the villain, and he owns it. Mm. Even if, ultimately, he just talks him into topping himself, which is quite sinister in its own way. But he's he doesn't hold back. He's vicious with him, you know? Yeah. Well, you heard the quote earlier. I'm not going to do it again, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and we have that wonderful... Is it Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yeah. Where they did the same thing with the wax yeah. face no. melting effect. The, so it's done by they created the sculpt of a well they created like the skeleton face with sort of red bits on it and it's got like pumps where it pulsates and stuff like that and they took a wax cast of his face and then they basically put flamethrowers on it and it melts now you'll notice that he shakes quite erratically when it's happening like why is that because when they were doing it they were like oh rocking backwards and forwards like he's in pain but then when they actually used the footage they sped it up so he's literally just <laughs> shaking and um, they cut it at the right point because yeah. the full effect is on the dvd on the blu-ray and it does look a bit comical when you see his eyes well you know that it's a it's a inflatable doll in the in the in the suit oh is yeah but they, oh, they, no. they let go. oh i think you hear it go <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like a balloon Ah, I now people criticise this, you know, male cardboard character, and she just decides to go, and it is a bit sudden. Yeah, but I think it's a lovely scene. It is a lovely scene. It doesn't quite make sense that this is what she's, why she's, why and when she's chosen to go. Do you think Rossi is going to do something with this? Oh yeah, he'll mention it in some way, shape, or form, um, and give it credence to why she needed to go off with glitz, or maybe she's just a opportunist and she's like this ship hasn't got a co-pilot i could be flying around the universe in the opening a giant freezer center (laughs) no it's it's, it's a nice try though yeah (laughs) but it's a lovely scene it is nice and i love mccoy's sort of wistful you know strange business yeah yeah i think this was wasn't this the audition piece yeah, it was, was rewritten. It, yeah, it was sort of based on this audition piece. And when you watch Sylvester McCoy's audition, as we are lucky enough to have those tapes, you kind of go, oh, that's why they cast him. And then it's so weird that immediately he's given scripts that don't offer moments like this. I mean, what's marvellous is in those audition tapes you get Janet Fielding as Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> it's basically the Helen A character, isn't yeah, it's it? It's true, but uh, never a better casting. Oh, just bring her back for that. She'd have been great. <laughs> that's nice. Cash. In fact, they are very tactile, um, Bonnie Langford yeah. and Sylvester McCoy. Because there's no idea of hanky-panky and the TARDIS. Oh, you don't want to think about those two at it, do you? No, no, not when she's going to go and sit on... <laughs> sit on Blitz. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, <laughs> she's going to go and play with the joystick of the controls <laughs> of the new colony ship she's now the queen of. I can't remember how they got around it in Life of Crime, which was the first big finish audio after this oh I can't remember oh, she's yeah. still out in, she's still in outer space yeah she's involved in some um, heist plot but she's left glitz she's left glitz yeah and she's a bit she's a more of a jaded character which is a shame because I like her positivity and her energy 
Like, you can have dark things happen to them, but I, I need her to be the same Mel that we know. I still think one of the best uses of Mel ever was in Steve Lyons' Head Games. Oh, I've never read it. So, she comes back right towards the end of the New Adventures. Obviously, at this point, McCoy is destroying planets and universes, yeah. and she's still Mel. Right. And she's like, I don't recognise who you are. And in the last scene of the book... She says, you're not the Doctor I know. She right. absolutely condemns him. Which and I think it was Steve Lyons saying, we've come too far mm. away from what the Doctor should be. That's interesting. And she's the best character to do it with, because yeah. she has got that sort of innocence about yeah. her. We missed uh, Ace or Sophie Aldred doing a big jump for joy when she said she can go... <laughs> Look at Sylvester McCoy's face there, though. It's yeah. such a impish, fun version of the Doctor. Look, it could have been the little girl going with yeah. her. That Who the hell would we pair her up with in the Remembrance <laughs> of the Daleks? You have this scene now where the woman's like, I've been looking all over for you. Yeah. It's also going, it's very quiet around here. What's happened to everybody? <laughs> or maybe some lines were cut. <laughs> I mean, it's very cute that we end on the little girl laughing. But nobody mentions the massacre. Nobody mentions the massacre. Um, but I'm sure that's what they... I mean, that's why Glitz and uh, Mel are so happy to have their hands on this place. It's like, <laughs> conveniently, <laughs> everybody's disappeared. Well, no, they're all dead. Oh, no, yeah. where were they put? Out the airlock? No, they blew up... They're all on the ship that got blown up. Oh, that's right. you still got a few people in, like, cryogenic freezing, though, right? You could have had a wonderful red wolf line, couldn't you? Quick, let's get out of it before they ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> wolf factor 10. In fact, imagine a red wolf show with Bonnie Langford and Tony Selby. I'm there. <laughs> they put Miranda Hart in a comedy science fiction show. Did they? Yeah. Uh, with Nick Frost in it as well. Oh. It only ran like two seasons. Doesn't, it was doesn't sound good. appalling. Well, look, Dylan, you know what we have to do now. We have talked for three episodes about Dragonfire. We have. And now we have to dig deep to find our three fabulous reasons as to why we would recommend it to people. Okay. Um, I will go first with the production design. It is not always successful, but the sets are fantastic and they're really sort of reaching for bigger things than perhaps they can do. But they, they put their all in, so yeah, the production design. I'm going to say the music of Dominic Glynn. I think very often the music covers a multitude of sins in Doctor Who. Yeah. But I think after three Kef McCulloch scores on the trot... We've had enough disco for season 24 and it's time for a bit of atmosphere. And yeah. he really brings it in this. Yeah. I especially like that music for the zombies. Oh yeah, the dun, 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 dun. That's amazing. Well done. Thank you very much. <laughs> very musical. Um, my next one is going to be the special effects. I know, shout out to my mates in the special effects department, but I think even though it doesn't always succeed, the melting of the skull, mm. the uh, spaceship stuff, the model of the planet, I think they're really trying here. And, you know, the effects go on to be much better in the next couple of seasons, but this is the sort of start of it, I think. I was truly impressed by those glass shots yeah. in this. To, yeah. to give it a sense of scale... They're really sort of experimenting with that at this point. Yeah. Um, okay, then I am going to say, hold on to your hat, and you're literally wearing a hat, <laughs> the introduction of Ace. Sophie Hooray. Aldrich, a massive breath of fresh air. Now, I'm not saying Mel was unsuccessful, yeah. but I think we're going in the right direction. We're going away from sort of two-dimension enthusiasm mm. yeah. into three-dimension melodrama at times, yeah. but... Uh, doing a lot of experimental things with a companion character and a Doctor Companion dynamic mm. that we've never done before. And it all starts here. 
I think she's got an interesting backstory. She does. He's certainly laid enough seeds so in case of Fenric he can start sowing them. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, I wonder where that metaphor was going. Um, no, no, I think she's great. I don't, I don't think she's the best actress in the world, Sophie Aldrin. No. I think she was a massive breath of fresh air. She for was, Who. and she um, is fantastic here and continues to be fantastic in Big Finish. Whether you like it or not. You are insane, Davros! Um, is that three? That's two. That's two. So speaking of being experimental with companions, uh, I'm going to choose <laughs> Blitz. <your> part. <laughs> who has experimented with at least one, maybe two Doctor Who <laughs> companions. Or maybe three, who knows. Um, Frobisher <laughs> omission impractical. <laughs> Flipper action. <laughs> Sorry. The mission impractical is just figuring out how to fuck a penguin. Uh, <laughs> Very impractical. Exactly. Uh, I think Glitz is part of one of the last great Robert Holmes characters, not Mo, mm. maybe because it's, he's one in the last Robert Holmes story, but I think that's a legacy of Robert Holmes, and I think Tony Selby's fantastic in the in the part, bringing this very lovable, actually quite a homicidal criminal, <laughs> and I think he's brilliant, and I am... Gutted that there are only two live-action appearances from him on television and he never shows up in audio. It's a real shame. But if Mark Donaldson is willing to sell his idea <laughs> to Russell T. Davis... Son of a glitz. <laughs> we're there. We've got someone who's willing to produce it and someone who's willing to critique it. Right here. Um, and my last one is, I think as... I think the first three stories don't score well in this department, but as the McCoy era progresses, they get better and better at this, and that is finding interesting relationships with the guest characters, like just the guest characters. Yeah. And the kane Belage relationship in this is really interesting. It's a little bit... There's almost like some weird sexual chemistry in there. Because yeah. she, she was a young girl, sort of when he lured her in. Um, she hates him enough to try and kill him. You know, he ultimately murders her for that betrayal because he thinks he's got her trust. Yeah. That's really interesting. So it's sort of high operatic yeah. drama. But it's fucking Doctor Who, you know? Yeah. It's a, in a kid's show. We love this stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's... it's Yeah, I, I, they just get... It's just good ideas with good characters and showing that the show still got it two or three seasons away from the end. And I think... Um, J&T used to get criticised a lot for, you know, his guest casting, but when it works, it works, and my God, in this one, it works, and as you say, the relationships between them all are fantastic. I think that sort of forlorn look Patricia Quinn gives when the Doctor says, you know, uh, you sold your soul, yeah, and then the look on her face when she says, leave, when he says, oh, off you go on the spaceship, you know, yeah. it's fine, your, your debt's paid... It's, they're really good character beats. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we are, again, heading in the right direction. We are. Wow, Dylan. That only leads me to ask you the question I always ask you at the end of this. Where are you and I heading next? Where are we heading next? I believe our next stop is with Fraser Gregory. We are going to be heading to Ranscor Av Kolos. For a battle. Indeed, no, for no, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine <laughs> episode. <laughs> that happens to feature a Doctor Who. Which uh, I, I think nobody likes, except you and Fraser. I mean, uh, I, I mean, we'll get into it on the podcast. I don't love it, but I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about in it. So, um, should we reconvene soon? 
we will reconvene soon. Alas, remotely next time. God damn it. But uh, thank you for allowing me into your cave to record <laughs> this. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Let me go and I'll show you my male action figure. <laughs> oh, there. Let's do it. <laughs> Are we done? Hooray. There we oh, go. Oh, wow.